So last week, if you're uh, if you're missing with what we're doing in this class is um, thinking about what are some of the practices of life. <laughs> Our panel it's discussion. A VIP. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> we will be hearing from you this morning. Um, we have to leave early. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we're talking about <coughs> what kind. Of <coughs> excuse me. What kind of practices of life could be space in which the grace of God. Uh, transforms us and changes us. And the first week, Laura uh, introduced this notion of, of learning to be quiet and to keep our mouths closed. And last week, I, I suggested uh, kind of playing off that uh, that proverb that we looked at the very first week. You know, answer, do not answer a fool according to his folly, thereby he'll think he is wise. And then the very next verse says, answer a fool according to his folly. Um, and so this sort of tension between what wisdom requires is knowing when am I answering and when am I not answering. So last week we talked about uh, speaking up. Uh, speaking up about the way we see things, speaking up about ourselves, uh, learning to tell the truth uh, about the way we see things or the way we see ourselves. So I, I suggested two uh, practices last week. One, if there's some situation about which you've long held your tongue, to ask yourself if you're deceiving, you're being deceitful, thereby? Uh, are you not speaking out because of cowardice? Are you staying silent out of fear? If so, find a way to say something. If you need a friend to encourage you, ask for the encouragement. The second one I suggested you consider is if there's some brokenness or secretiveness or sinfulness inside you that has not been acknowledged, find someone trustworthy with whom to share it. So those were our kind of our two practices we suggested for this week. So what we're going to do is we're going to do our kind of think-pair-share. If you haven't been with us in the think-pair-share, the, the rules are, are these. One, you need to pair up with someone who's not your spouse. Uh, and then after you figure out who that person is, you're going to talk to them. We only have about 60 seconds, so 30 seconds each. Okay. Uh, sharing, if, if you were able to do one of these things this week, or even, even if you weren't able to do one, if you had internal struggle about doing one, some sort of indication that you feel safe in this environment talking about what you did this week, share with the other person for about 30 seconds each. And then we'll open it up for whoever would like to share in the group as a whole to do that. So I think pair share. So, first thing you need to do, everybody identify who you're going to pair up with. And then once you identify that, start talking. All right? But, but, let's do this. Does anybody need a pair? All right. What we would like to do is, uh, if you're willing to share uh, with the group as a whole something that uh, you learned out of the experience this week, we would love to hear from you. And even, even if you're not sharing... Um, Content about what you may have said, you know, something you may have learned about the practice of speaking up is especially what we're interested in in this context. I think it was very good that we learned how to speak, how to not speak first before we learned how to speak because it helped me kind of discern when to speak. That, that there were times in my life where I was speaking either to be heard for the, for the clanging gongs and all that or to hurt other people. This how learning how to be silent first and then gave me room so that if I needed to speak, I was actually hmm. well thought out and being spoken. Nice. Yeah. It does strike me, you know, the, the, uh, in the Catholic moral tradition, um, silence has been seen as a huge practice in Christian discipleship. And um, 
I don't know that conservative Protestant traditions have thought very much about that. Um, typically, we seem to think in the effusion of words, all things can be healed. Um, but in fact, uh, a lot of times, silence is, is a very, very powerful thing. So I, I think that's, that's very helpful, David, that you kind of think of it in terms of maybe our, our first default is to be quiet, and then if we discern we need to speak, let it come out of that quietness. So good. And that, is that the reason why the Catholic Church did not speak up when six million Jews were being executed or put to death? Hitler, Germany? Well, yeah. I, um, I would guess that the answer to that is, is um, more complicated than that observation I just made. Um, I, I would guess that has a lot more to do with Constantinianism than being quiet. And that the assumptions about alliance with power and, a, and an unwillingness, which has been the case with Christianity pretty much since the fourth century, um, it's been a very key, a very small minority in the Christian tradition that has assumed that alliance with power is a dangerous thing, and um, and so a lot of times when you have alliances with power, that's a that's another form of keeping quiet that's very very dangerous, uh, that can lead to fear about losing power. So, thank you. I think another thing too is you can be quiet. But the expression on your face can say a whole lot. Like my wife, you know, she'll look at me like this. Say a word. Yes, there are many more forms of uh, communication than mere words, right? right. Yeah. Right. Somebody else, what did you learn this week? I learned that direct and simple speech works really well with children. Mm. Interesting. Direct and simple speech works really well with children. Works probably fairly well with adults too. Thank you, Mary. Somebody else? Rachel. I liked what you said last week about being nice is not a Christian virtue. Mm -hmm. I think that's hard, especially in the South too, and these feelings. So how do you how do you balance speaking up or speaking the truth when it might hurt someone's feelings? And this isn't like a might not be an issue of biblical but at what point do you, you know, feel confidence speaking the truth, even though it might make someone have you balance that? I mean, I, I think typically I, I, I used to err on the side of not speaking. And, and one of the things, of course, whenever we're learning any new practice, we learn from the virtue traditions that the tendency is if you're if you're off on one side over here and you're learning to do it and get back over here, you often have to overshoot and you do too much, right? Um, but I do think probably that if if one's tendency is to always be quiet or to let niceness be the thing that always keeps us quiet, that it's worth. Um, it's worth falling off some on the other side sometimes in order to learn where that virtuous place is in the middle. And I think sometimes like we can only learn it by doing it and getting feedback from other people, you know. <coughs> I do find that on all the practice of all of these things, the more I have trusted people around me who will, who I can talk it through, especially if the stakes are somewhat significant, um, the, that, that's very important for me. Thanks, Rachel. Thank you, Mike. Tracy. I, this is one of the 
course, the personality makes a big difference. If you're an Enneagram 8, it's not going to be an issue ever. Um, and then for people where it's not when you're worried about practicing the feelings, then just trying it some, practicing, and then realizing that how you die after, after you did it. And if you find success with it some, then it'll be easier to do yeah. the next Thanks, Tracy. Rob? I wasn't here last week, so if you rest as a lot of guys, but you just mentioned the virtuous place. Who determines that? Um, well, in the... I think that in many ways um, it's a by your fruit you shall know them sort of thing. Um, because if, if, if our... <coughs> If our failure to speak up, if we're able to see that our failure to speak up habitually is yielding certain damaging, dysfunctional fruit, then we probably, that's probably a good indication to move on over towards speaking up more. If on the other hand, we're finding that our, our um, tendency or habits of always speaking or speaking in certain ways is causing damaging or dysfunctional fruit, that's probably a sign to move back the other way. Um, so I think the kind of buy your fruit you shall know them is always a helpful gauge. Um, and in, inevitably it's a, it's a, a communal discernment, I think, rather than... And I think another thing I would note is that it seems to me that um, one of the... One of the things that seems troubling to me right now is that we seem to have so little capacity for communal mercy and that um, there, there are these kind of moral police on the right and the left that um, what a virtue tradition reminds us is that the, the, the discipline of prudence means that you're taking into account all sorts of potential consequences and all sorts of potential players in any given situation. And prudence may also require that you don't tell everybody everything that you know about a given situation. And I think that um, rather than a legalistic, I'm going to tell you what's right, or we're going to tell you what's right, um, a sort of practice of Mercy that Laura's actually going to be talking about today, I think, can be terribly helpful in these sorts of situations. Uh, one more. Well, and this might not ring true with some people here. I had a very wise mother, and she had a lot of saying. One of them was that she never learned anything while she was talking. Mm. And <laughs> the other one was that it's better to be silent and be called a fool than to open your mouth and remove all that. <laughs> I like both of those, yeah. Thank you, Sue. All righty. Laura's going to share with us today about things to try this week.
Oh, 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 sorry, sorry, sorry. Okay. So, thank you, Lee. That was pretty good. <laughs> um, what I want to uh, talk about today is from James at the end or kind of in the middle of chapter 2. Um, it says, speak and act as those who will be judged by the law that gives freedom. For judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And James says that in the context of talking about showing favoritism and explaining to... Um, explaining that favoritism is forbidden and have you shown favoritism? Um, do you um, uh, love your neighbor as yourself? And if you have overlooked that accidentally, even though you've kept all the other laws about do not commit adultery and do not commit murder, that if you've overlooked treating other people the way that you would like to be treated, well, you've broken the law. And it doesn't matter if you break one law or all of the law, you need mercy. And so he's reminding people, be merciful so you can be shown mercy. And if you do not show mercy, you will not be shown mercy. Um, and so that's where I wanted to hover today and challenge you for this week. And of course, we all know the beatitude in Matthew. Um, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. So I just wanted to talk about what exactly it means to be merciful. And I want to challenge you this week to speak and act with mercy. Um, for me... I think um, mercy has to start with an awareness, just like humility. <clears throat> I think sincere, authentic, genuine humility starts with an awareness of my place in the kingdom of heaven, my place in the world, my relationship <laughs> to God. Um, it keeps me humble if I'm aware of the reality of that situation. I am more likely to um, find, you know, an appropriate humility when I'm practicing that real awareness. I think mercy is the same way. Um, I think that when I'm aware that I'm a sinner and the more in touch I am with the fact that I'm a sinner, uh, it's easier to show mercy and it's easier to spot where I'm not showing mercy. Um, I encourage you when you um, want to show mercy, um, if, if that is something that doesn't come immediately natural <coughs> to you, I think there's some ways you can practice showing mercy. Um, one is when you hear a story, there are lots of stories to hear. Um, when you hear a story, do you quickly and first off identify with 
the the person being oppressed in the story or or the hero in the story do you um identify first and foremost with whoever the good guy is in the story if you do i encourage you um next time you hear a story at work or at home look for what resonates with you in the bad guy in the story um i think that it's much more popular to especially when we're posting stuff on social media to identify with the good guy and to remind the bad guy why he shouldn't have done what he did but to me that um is so um unself-aware i think that shows a lack of self-awareness that I'm that person. I'm the one who said or did something that in black and white looks utterly ridiculous and awful. Um, if you were tape recording me yesterday, or if you had a camera in a hidden camera in my house yesterday, or if you quoted me word for word on a day when I was feeling a little sorry for myself and hungry too. Um, I don't want that to get out and um, for me sorry for me journaling helps um, I think that sometimes I'm aware um, you know I'm a sinner and I think that that's helpful to remind yourself you're a sinner I think it's more helpful to get a little more specific with yourself and I don't mean in a, you know, wear a hair shirt kind of way, you know, you know what a hair shirt is. Can you explain what a hair shirt is? It was a shirt that was made out of hair to make you miserable, but the, some of the monks in the Middle Ages were there to remind them of how miserable they are. Yeah. So I, I don't mean just... And they would do it for a whole year. They would change their clothes at Easter only, sew themselves up. Out we heard that at one of the cathedrals in England that that these monks would wear these hair shirts and it was a way to deprave your body and show I am just a worthless sinner and I deserve this hair shirt all year long. Um, I would challenge you to um, not do that <laughs> and instead when you hear a story and you are quick to identify with the hero or the good guy or the funny mm -hmm. one in the story, um, I encourage you to just sit down, maybe with a journal, and wait and see what bubbles up. Think about the person who did wrong in the story or who was insensitive in the story or who um, overlooked or was oblivious to someone else's need in the story and sit down maybe and just see what part just be still and see what part of that resonates with you and for me when I start journaling and I'm not in a hurry um, if I sit there long enough 10 15 minutes I'm not talking about all day um, I learn stuff about myself I don't, I don't know if you're the same way, but I learn stuff about myself. Um, 
sometimes when Lee and I have been in an argument and he's really mad at me for something and I think he's completely wrong. Um, sometimes if I sit down with my journal and I, I don't, I used to furiously journal what Lee did wrong so that I could get it out, you know. It's all about getting it out and venting and then I can move past it. For me personally, that does not work. If I start writing it out, I can sit there and fill up three pages, single spaced, and then I get up and I'm angrier than I was when I sat down. But if I sit down and look for, and I write down maybe what he has said to me that he would like for me to realize about myself. And I just sit there and wait. My hand starts moving and words start appearing on the page and I start learning stuff about myself. And if I sit there long enough and do that frequently enough, I can see what he's talking about. Um, so I think mercy requires some self-awareness. And that's how I find it. You may find it a different way. But I encourage you to figure out um, how to find some self-awareness. Um, I want to let you know that um, I think that showing mercy, for me, and I'm getting a little out of order here, for me, showing mercy sometimes means I call my second cousin, who's like 65, and he lives in Murfreesboro, and he doesn't work. He is disabled. He has a mental issue. Um, he always has. He's lonely. His mother died 10 years ago, and he um, he's really, really lonely all the time and we only see him at holidays. And it's hard to sit down and talk to Bill because Bill literally doesn't have a lot to talk about. And so sometimes for me, an act of mercy is writing down on my to-do list for the day, I will call Bill today. Um, and I think that's great. And I, I think you should do that too. I think there are some acts of mercy we do out of obligation, and they're not easy. And when the phone is ringing at Bill's house, and I'm waiting for him to pick up, there's a part of me that's hoping it goes to voicemail. Because I would like to get credit for having reached out to Bill <laughs> without actually having to do it. And then when he does pick up, he picks up like on the eighth or ninth ring, it never went to voicemail. We had a 20-minute conversation about his new hot water heater. And I told him about our refrigerator leak. And that was the whole of the conversation. But we, we, we dove as deeply into those two topics as we possibly could. Because that's, that's Bill's whole frame of reference. So I'm meeting him there. And when I get off the phone, I say to myself out loud in my car, even though I'm the only one in the car, I love Bill. He is precious. Thank you, God, for teaching me what you have to teach me through Bill. And so I do think acts of mercy that are done from a place of pure obligation are meaningful and helpful. I do, and I encourage you to do them. But I would suggest that if that's all you've got, 
you're not, um, that, that's a little too pasted on. Um, that's like pasting on the fruit on a tree. You're taking twisty ties and attaching an apple to a tree. Maybe it's not growing out of the tree. And I would suggest that for the fruit to grow out of you, rather than you having to paste it on, and again, sometimes it is helpful. But for it to grow out of you, I would suggest that we have to rewire our brains sometimes. And I don't know how many of you have experience with addiction in your family, but I do. Um, we have lots of addiction in our family. And I've learned, because we've gotten lots and lots of professional help, that the brains of addicts have literally become rewired. And the patterns that they go through, and the pattern that I go through, um, as I live or am around an addict, live with or am around an addict, the patterns I go to become cleared in the grass. A dirt path gets formed in the grass. And so rituals and thought processes um, become so routine that the neuro <coughs> pathways, however you say that, really do. I mean, your brain looks different under a scan when you're an addict. And we learn when you are recovering from addiction that you don't have to keep walking those same paths. And it's not steely determination that will help you change course. It is carving new paths. And carving new paths takes effort. Just like when you're walking a path and you're going to carve a new path, it's not going to show up that first time. If you're walking in the grass right beside a dirt path or perpendicular to a dirt path, it's not going to show up the first maybe 100 times you walk it, but it will start showing up and grass is going to start to grow over the old path. The grass will spread and it'll, it'll get covered. So for me in my life, um, and I don't mean to sound like I have all the answers, I do not. Um, and Lee has taught me this. I called Lee one day. I had I'm very sensitive to graphic stuff in books or movies. I can't deal with it. Um, if, it's a gr if it's graphic violence or if you surprise me with a really graphic, even sex scene, it just like freezes on my brain and then I torture myself with it like in the weeks following. Like it just comes in and I think, oh shoot, that's there. So I had, I had read something in a book and I was not expecting it. It shocked me. And so then the image was in my head. I thought, oh, shoot, that image is in my head. So like a week later, I call Lee from work. I said, I cannot, I'd already told him about this scene. I said, I cannot stop thinking about this awful, awful scene. And I'm obsessed about it, and I can't stop thinking about it. And he said, when that scene pops into your head, tell yourself, stop. I'm not going to think about that and then do something different. Get up and go to the bathroom or go get a glass of water from the refrigerator or whatever. Stop and do something different, but say to yourself, whether it's out loud or in your head, stop, I'm, I'm not gonna put mental energy into that. Um, and it works. <laughs> it doesn't work the very first time you do it, like magic, 
But the more I practice that, I found it works. Um, I think that showing mercy has to come from your thoughts. Um, I think that, I believe Philippians 4, 8. Um, I had this. This is helpful to me, and I hope, I, I know that you know it, it's very popular. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Um, I think we all know, I can't think harsh thoughts about you and show you mercy. I can't delight in hearing that you have experienced a failure and show you mercy. I can't get kind of excited when I hear that some major celebrity, um, you know, has a falling out in their marriage. If that kind of excites me a little bit and thrills me a little bit, I don't think that's a very merciful thought. And I personally cannot show mercy without, if I'm thinking those kinds of thoughts. And so I want to challenge you, if you experience the same, to invest in um, thinking positive thoughts by calling it what it is. If I am kind of glad to hear about a scandal, because it's kind of fun to hear about that, I think it's worth saying to myself, I don't want to take pleasure in that, and then think about something different. I think it's helpful to look at the bad guy in that scandal and look for ways I can relate to that. Um, and then finally, I want to say, and I realize we're running out of time. I'm, I'm, I'm good. I think I have five more minutes. Um, I pulled this article from Na uh, National Catholic Reporter. Lee was very impressed. When he saw me <laughs> with the NCR on the way to church, I did not know what he meant by NCR, but he meant the National Catholic Reporter. And the reason I pulled this article is that I think that when, when I started thinking about acts of mercy, obviously feeding the poor is merciful, visiting the prisoner is merci merciful, um, um, you know what I mean. <laughs> Giving money to the homeless is merciful. Those are all good, grand acts of mercy. And I think we should participate in those. I think that um, some people do really well doing those kinds of things and living a life where those kinds of things are prevalent. My sister is one of them. My sister lives in Memphis with her husband and they are Shane Claiborne types. Do you all know Shane Claiborne? He is a Christian activist, speaker. He helped start a community in Philadelphia, and they live in service to the poor. So Shane Claiborne has dreadlocks and walks around in homemade clothes that are way too big for him. And he li he's denied himself, and he lives in service to the poor and talks about it and writes about it. And that's how my sister lives. And when I go to her house, there are people coming in and out. And they're getting in the refrigerator, and they come to dinner two nights a week. And they walk in, and I think, please let me visit with my sister. But I, they're always there, because my sister lives in community. And 
I can't do that. I do not do very well like that. I need a lot more private time than that, and I can't wait to get out of her apartment sometimes because I've, I'm so overstimulated by the poor and her life of service to the poor. Um, and a funny aside, I met Shane Claiborne once. Lee had him on his token show. And Shane was backstage, and I, you've picked up on the fact that I can be awkward and nervous, and I saw Shane, and he was sitting on a bar stool, waiting to go on, and my brother-in-law and sister were so excited that Shane Claiborne was going to be on the show, and I said to Shane Claiborne, hello, I'm Lee's wife. My sister lives in community. <laughs> As though that was my aunt. I'm Lee's wife, and my sister thinks you're all that and lives like you do. Um, so I think that's great. And I love that my sister lives like that, and it challenges me, and it humbles me. But I can't live like that. What can I do? And so I'm going to read you just a few paragraphs of this from the NCR. And a woman named Benita wrote this. And this is what I'm challenging you to do this week. Having lived intentionally as a Christian for more than 40 years, I have avoided the easily labeled sins, acts that would require my arrest or resignation. Yet I am a persistent <coughs> sinner. When a reporter asked Pope Francis, who are you? And he answered, I am a sinner. I knew that at least I'm in good company. Our Pope has named, however, the grand antidote to sin, which is mercy. As I move through this day, how will I live mercifully? What words and actions will express to others around me the mercy Francis is talking about? In a given day, I do ordinary things and I traverse a fairly unexciting landscape. My mercy will not show up in grand gestures, and most of the time mercy reveals itself in fleeting moments. For example, mercy gives you his seat on the bus, acting as if he was about to get up anyway, rather than making you feel that he is doing you a favor. Mercy does not let out a sigh, you know the one, the wordless disapproval toward the person in the checkout line ahead of you whose car didn't swipe or who can't find all her coupons or whose toddler is having a meltdown. Mercy offers quiet sympathy and does not convey with her body language that this holdup is ruining her day. Sometimes mercy chooses not to send the food, not to send back the food that isn't just right simply because the waitress looks overwhelmed. When mercy has been wronged, the offended one does not make it difficult for the offender to apologize or to ask forgiveness. In fact, mercy does not wait for the other's action, but forgives before forgiveness is asked. Likewise, at work, at home, or in the classroom, mercy creates an atmosphere in which a person feels safe enough to admit his mistake or ask a question. And if mercy must correct someone, it pains her to do it, and she does so gently without vindictive relish. Mercy makes a habit of giving others the benefit of the doubt. Mercy is not in the habit of sending deadly glares at people. Mercy gives charitably 
knowing that eventually someone will take advantage of his generosity. Mercy welcomes you. In all these situations, mercy treats power as a sacred trust. I can be merciful because I have some sort of power, the means to affect another person's life, if only for a moment. I act mercifully when I use my power to do kindness in this world. So that's what I want to challenge you all to do this week, is practice everyday mercy. Speak and act in mercy. Think the best of someone when it's tempting to think hopeless thoughts about that person. Extend the benefit of the doubt. Don't send back your food. Um, just try a simple, everyday, common act of mercy. <coughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.